Okay, so Esther for president is the perfect way to end this because in the story of Esther, if you're not uh, aware of this, and by the way, if we're going to read anything today, we're going to read chapter four, so you can either follow along on the screen or you can pull out your pew Bible and just, that's what we're going to read today is Esther chapter four. But we're going to look at the entire story of Esther and what's so fitting for this time and this era and, and what happened uh, November, uh, November 8th is the fact that in the story of Esther, God is never overtly mentioned. So there isn't kind of this uh, mention of kind of a cloud of smoke or a pillar of fire or the seas are parted or what have you. And yet all the while, um, God is in absolute control. You understand that? Like he's sovereign. He doesn't take a playoff. He doesn't go and play golf. He's not an ambulance chaser. He didn't. He's not shocked that Trump took Florida. He wasn't up late at night like, oh, wow, Michigan. Wisconsin didn't see that coming. Wow. You know, uh, God wasn't amazed at what happened. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And in the same way, God knew exactly how this story with Esther was going to play out. And so uh, I want to share with you just this incredible story. And then we're going to look at, at one aspect of this story. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the election. Yeah. All right. So there's just a, a few folks you need to know. Number one is um, Xerxes. Now, the way in, in your Bible he's often talked about is uh, Ahasuerus, okay? And uh, I'm probably murdering the correct pronunciation of that. I just know him as Xerxes. The reason why, if you've ever seen the movie 300, if you ever saw that, the big, tall, uh, ball-headed guy with the huge army, that's Hollywood's depiction of Xerxes, okay? So it's like Hollywood in the Bible there. We're kind of matching up. This is interesting. Then there's Queen Vashti, which she's not around for very long, but we'll still talk about her. Then there's Haman. Haman's a bad dude, okay? He's really out for Haman, okay? That's what Haman cares about. Then there is uh, Mordecai, who is the cousin of Esther. Mordecai has adopted Esther. Esther has lost her mother and father. Esther actually is growing up under the kind of the care of Mordecai in what is present-day Iran, just to kind of give you an idea of where all this is happening. Now, what's interesting to set up the story, Xerxes is unbelievably powerful. He, he presides over 127 provinces. His reach, so to speak, is uh, like from Asia to Africa, back over to India. I mean, it's, it's enormous. He gets what he wants, when he wants it. He is unparalleled, unquestionable power and authority, absolute, okay? That's who this man is. And so um, Esther chapter one kicks off this way with three parties. Number one, the king has like kind of a VIP party. Okay. He invites his guests, the governors, the people that are high up. That only lasts for six months, according to scripture. Okay. 180 days of drunken debauchery. There's no Uber. Okay. There's, there's, there's no need to go home. You just stay there on the grounds and it is a frat party for six months months okay and then scripture says after that then he has a week-long party where he invites everyone okay rich and poor whatever you come on down and it just goes into the ornate decorations and all of the nice stuff that everyone has you know the cups are are all unique it's gold and fine linens and even the poor get to come in i mean it's a brilliant move i mean if you want to control a group of people just give them one week out of 52 to hang out with you. Keeps him under his thumb. Then there's a third party. 
and it's the ladies only party. See, it's Queen Vashti with just the girls so that the men can be barbaric animals, right, in their party, and then the women have their little party. So there's three parties that are outlined in chapter one. Now, this is the thing is that the height of his drunkenness, when everyone is there in the second party, he says, hey, bring the queen in. I want to show her off. Why he wants to show everyone how good she is at math? Obviously. No, it was to recite poetry. It's her mind that we really wanted to let everyone else see. No, he wanted to march her out and say, check out my trophy queen. Look at what I have that you don't have. Well, of course, the queen is not having it. The queen says, no, I'm not going to show up with you and all your drunken friends. Now, this is a problem. The king is incensed, Xerxes. He actually pulls together almost kind of the equivalent of like the Supreme Court. And they're like, Xerxes, we can't do this. If she says no to you and the word gets out, we're going to have a women's liberation movement. Women everywhere are not going to listen to their husbands, right? We, we got we to put this down ASAP. And so Xerxes, he just kind of bows up and he's like, well, here's the decree. She's out. She's banished. Matter of fact, we need to find a new queen. He just makes that call, right? And he sobers up and realizes, wow, I've got to find a new queen. I just literally got rid of that one. And I'm coming down from the wine that I was drinking. That was a bad move. So now he's got to find a queen. And so this huge area, this huge landmass, they decide to have a beauty contest. Bring in the most beautiful women you can find. We're going to fill out the harem. Then we're going to have this contest and figure out who's going to be the next queen. And scripture says, just this humble woman, this Jewish girl named Esther, somehow, some way, over the whole, all of these provinces, rises to the surface. Ladies, I don't know how long it takes some of you to get ready for a date. Well, before she goes and meets with the king for the first time, it says an entire year of beauty treatment. A year. An entire year. That's right. And so uh, she has risen and caught the king's eye. Now, what's also happening is her caretaker, Mordecai, her cousin, has risen now into kind of the king's court. Word gets out when all this is kind of happening that there's a hit out on the king. Mordecai hears about it. He lets the king know and he saves the king's life. Now that's going to be pertinent information later. But just know Mordecai, the cousin, hears about the assassination attempt on Xerxes' life. And he lets the king know. And the king puts down the rebellion, the assassination attempt, where it could even happen. Meanwhile, this bad guy named Haman, he's promoted to like chief of staff. He's like second in command. Okay, so this is where all the power players are. The really evil guy that's really all about himself. He's the number two man. Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, he's now saved the king's life as of right now. But there's this one thing about Mordecai. Mordecai is a big fan of Mordecai. Okay. Actually, I said that wrong. Let's start over. Haman is a big fan of Haman, and everybody bows to Haman but one person, Mordecai. Haman can't stand this. This is incensed Haman. And rather than just kill Mordecai, what Haman has decided to do is he decides, I'm going to wipe out all of your people. We're going to commit genocide over all of the Jews in all of the provinces if you're not going to bow to me. And Haman goes to the king and he says, hey, king, there's this group of people. They don't respect your laws. They don't obey your laws. They obey different laws. 
the king doesn't even ask which group of people. He doesn't ask, are they related to the queen? He doesn't ask any of that. He just takes off his ring, hands it to him, and says, go ahead and write the law. Do what you got to do. And word spreads everywhere that the Jews at an undisclosed time are going to be exterminated. And that's where our story picks up in Esther chapter 4. Please follow along. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Haman offered a bribe to the king to get permission to do this. Verse 8, he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So just so you know, the queen, Esther, hasn't seen her king in 30 days. Remember that harem? He's not exactly a one-woman man. And there's already a precedence that if you challenge him in any way, shape, or form, he has no problem putting you out. So this idea of approaching the king and not being invited could mean actually certain death. And there's already a precedence that he's not going to take a lot of pushback from a queen. So she has reason. Esther has reason to be concerned. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and I will perish. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And so this woman with such guts and bravery, she goes before the king. He holds out the gold scepter and he says, what do you wish, my queen? Which is really like something he really doesn't mean, like 
would you like up to half my kingdom, which he really doesn't mean. It's like the person who tells you, hey, come by anytime. They don't really want you to come by. It's just what you said, right? Okay, so he's, he, that's exactly what he's saying. What do you want up to? You know, half my kingdom. And she looks at him and just says, you know, we're having a party, a little banquet. I'd love to invite you. He loves to party, remember? He's for it. So she invites him to the party. They have the banquet while they're drinking. They got a little wine going. And he says, so by the way, what, what do you wish, my dear? She goes, well, I'd like to invite you to another banquet. Okay. And then all of a sudden, Haman, the guy that's all about Haman, right? He jumps in and he goes, you know, let's just make it just kind of a little group thing. Just me and, and the king and you. How does that sound? Okay, very good. So they all go home, right? Now, right now, Haman, he goes home and he's talking to his wife. He's talking to his advisors. He's talking to his close friends. And he's like, man, I just hate this Mordecai. I can't stand this guy. And his family and friends say, you know what you should do? You should put up gallows 75 feet tall and you should hang him tomorrow during the banquet. Sounds good. That sounds like a good plan. We should do that. And, you know, that same night, so they all kind of go, Great. That's a great plan. Well, then that night, for some reason, the king can't sleep. I don't know. Just couldn't sleep. King wakes up and he goes, you know, I can't sleep, guys. Somebody read me a story. Which story, king? I like the story that's about me. You know, the book that's about me that just talks about everything that I did. Can we read that book? Can someone read it to me? Sure. So all of a sudden, the, the, his kind of helpers, they begin to read the story. And what story do they pick? Well, they picked that one time that Mordecai saved the king's life. And the king is going, I totally forgot to honor this guy. It slipped my mind. I can't have this on my reputation. What was I thinking? So he's, oh, okay. So it hits him, right? The next morning, he wakes up and he goes to his trusted chief of staff, Haman, and he says, Haman, what do I do for a man that I want to honor? Now, Haman, what he's thinking is that the king is talking about him to him. And Haman goes, I'll tell you what you should do. You should hook him up with the king's horse. You should hook him up with some royal robes. And you should give a king, you should give a crown to the horse. Okay? That's how amazing this is going to look. And then you should march him through town and talk about how awesome he is. And the king goes, that's a brilliant idea. Haman, I want you to do that for Mordecai tomorrow. Okay? You want to give him the robes, give him the horse, put the crown on, on, on the horse. And then I want you to walk around in front of the horse telling everyone how great Mordecai is. He's incensed. He goes home. He's like, I'm going to destroy this person. I hate and I loathe this man. And he's complaining to his wife. And then his wife looks at him and says, you know, oh, by the way, honey, I forgot to mention this. Mordecai, um, if he's related to those Jewish people, this is going to be your downfall. No sooner is, you know, he's getting sick to his stomach. The doorbell rings. Here's one of the chauffeurs for the king, right? He's picking him up in a limo. Hey, remember that second banquet that you agreed to go to? You got to go. And now he's feeling sick because he realizes now the fix is in. He already told the king he wanted to kill these Jews. There's the gallows that's already waiting 75 foot high. And he is now terrified. He goes to the dinner and the king for the second time says, dear queen, what's up? Well, then she looks at the dinner party and says, well, king, someone's going to destroy my people. No one's going to destroy my queen's people. I mean, that's 
insane. I will kill whoever's going to do that. Who would ever think to destroy you or your people? And then she just points across the table. Haman. That quickly. Haman is now swinging from the gallows that were for Mordecai. Oh, and all those people that were going to be killed, all of a sudden they're spared. See, the chief of staff, there's a convenient opening. Who's going to be the number two? Esther says, you know, I know just the guy. His name is Mordecai. And so then it says in scripture that Mordecai now resides over the house of Haman. And he writes a new law that allows the Jews to protect themselves whenever this day of reckoning. And scripture says that the fear of the Jews was so great, in fact, that people pretended to be Jews. And the very people that sought to destroy the Jews, actually themselves were destroyed. God flipped the whole thing from this series of events. A king who couldn't sleep. Gallows intended for one man end up around and for another man. A group of people that was going to be destroyed actually ends up destroying the destroyer. Whole thing is flipped. God's people are spared. The Feast of Purim to this day in the Jewish culture and the Jewish calendar is celebrated, commemorating this whole series of events. So, isn't that amazing? I mean, but what does that have to do with November 8th? Anything? I tell you what, I thought this would be helpful. This is something we've never really done before, but we're going to try it. I wanted to introduce you to two of my friends. I thought they would come up here and kind of talk a little bit about the election, kind of get some healthy dialogue going. Now, I have to warn you, these two friends of mine, um, they tend to just throw haymakers. You know, they're, 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 they're the uh, uh, Facebookers that just send kind of links on Facebook to random articles. You know, they just kind of light people up left and right. Um, they can be that way. And I want to warn you, they can be offensive. OK, but I thought I'd bring them up here. and We would just kind of have a healthy dialogue and I'm going to moderate. OK, so my, my first friend I want to introduce you to, his name is Alt-J. Uh, here's the thing about Alt-J. Alt-J, you may know him as Republican Josh, uh, conservative Josh, right-wing Josh. Actually, we just call him Alt-J because he's so alt-right, we can't even say his actual name. We had to alter his name. So it's just Alt-J. Okay, there he is. Yeah. And then the other friend I want to introduce you to is Liberal Josh. Okay, and here's Liberal Josh. Now, the thing about Liberal Josh, he only waves with his left hand. He only waves, eats, votes and shakes hands with his left hand because he's that left of center. He, he doesn't even use his right arm, okay? So this is, this is liberal Josh over here. And I thought what we would do is we would just have a discussion. I'm going to try to moderate it, okay? I thought we'd, we would just talk about um, the last two years. Is that okay? I certainly hope so because all three of us are here, okay? By the way, how tall are you? Well, I'm 5'10". How tall are you? 5'9". So, okay. Just kidding. All right, so let, let, let's get this going. You know, one of the things that we believe, we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. We feel like God's word is very, very clear on that. And we actually believe that's what's best for society, to be obedient to God's word, and that marriage is between just a man and one woman. Yeah, I notice you're really big about being obedient to God's word. That's right. You seem to skip over that part about divorce. You seem to do that regularly, by the way. That whole divorce thing, because I think the Bible says that too. 
you know, I think maybe it's better to think about kind of marriage more as a civil union. You know, it's between just two people who love each other. You know, I think that's what makes more sense to me. Oh, I get it. So you want God to uh, to bless what you no longer want him to define. Am I understanding that correctly? Shut your mouth. Okay, so uh, let me say this. Um, stop racial profiling, okay? You know what? Stop and frisk is a good thing, and it works. You know, by the way, you stifled our economy, you and your people and your administration. Are you kidding me? You crashed our economy. Seriously, where have you been the last 10 years? You know, and another thing, black lives matters. Not in the womb, apparently. Okay, let's let's stop. Does anybody know what a false dichotomy is? False dichotomy, a false argument. It's when someone tells you, here's the problem. And then what you do is you take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You put just a little bit of truth in it. And then you spit it right back at the person's face. Completely move the conversation. You didn't empathize. You didn't listen. You didn't try to understand. You just pivoted. Their thoughts, their feelings aren't even validated. Was that offensive? Because I can tell you what I have seen on Facebook in the last two years is exactly that. Over and over and over again. I would rather you in this room come into my office for 10 minutes, cuss, throw things, and yell about the election. And then after you have emotionally thrown up all over my office and redecorated it, then we will pray for you and for our country, and then you can go. I'd rather you do that than post another thing on Facebook that's negative. You know what's interesting is whenever we have the high ground, we're justified. When we have the moral high ground, we can say whatever we want because the other person is below dignity. Can I just tell you, biblically, the only people that had the moral high ground were called Pharisees. And, you know, the only people that put all their faith and trust in the government as their savior were called the Sadducees. And together they worked to destroy and publicly execute Jesus. And then they worked together to destroy the movement of the early church. It has to stop. What's at stake is the proclamation of the gospel. But hey, they're just words, right? Ah, bigot, racist, throw it out there, see what sticks. Okay, let's go back to our discussion, right? I'm sorry, after I was so rudely interrupted, I was trying to finish my thought. You know, one of the things we really value is the unborn. We have compassion for the unborn. We believe that babies in the womb have rights. Unless, of course, you're talking about the womb of an illegal immigrant who comes over to this country just to make end meet, ends meet and be a contributor to society. Because apparently once that baby's out of the womb, they have no rights. So I'm assuming they have no rights in the womb as well. What were you saying about compassion? Again, by the way, I, I think I, I missed that. You know, um, ISIS was started because of your 
war in Iraq and how you guys went in. No, no, no. ISIS was started by how you guys pulled out of Iraq, right? I mean, am I right? You know, here's the thing. You guys mocked Colin Kaepernick when he took a knee for justice. You guys mocked and laughed at Tim Tebow when he took a knee for Jesus. Of course, we all know that Jesus wants Tim Tebow to throw touchdowns and hit home runs. Guys, can we just admit that both quarterbacks are really not good? Can we at least? We Radical Islamic terror. Can you even say it? Can you even say radical Islamic? Bro, my Muslim neighbor. Gun rights, gun violence. Systematic undermining of traditional family values. Systematic racism is undermining people of color's value. Have some morals. Have some compassion. See? Classic white guilt. Typical white privilege. You know, November 8th, my hope in America was restored. Woo! You know, on November 8th, my hope along with the popular vote was crushed. America first. Make America great again. Huh? America was great when? You may think that Donald Trump is just as evil as King Xerxes. And had Hillary Clinton won, you may think that she is just as evil as King Xerxes. This morning, I want to remind you that God will work through and if need be in spite of Donald Trump. Do you realize that as a church and all of the insanity that's happening around us, for the sake of the gospel, we have got to be a diverse church. We've got to be a church of other races, other nationalities, other backgrounds, other political ideology. And can I just tell you this, guys? If we are the lone group of people that are able to actually have civil discourse and listen more than we talk, do you realize just on that basis alone, just on that basis alone, we will be an oasis in an otherwise political desert right now. Just that much would set us apart. I want to point you to a moment with Jesus right before his execution in John 19, 9 to 11. And you can follow along here on the screen. 
And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power to either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. What is it like to be God and having someone exercise authority over you that you gave them? What is it like, I wonder, to be God and to have someone so arrogantly impose their power over you that you first gave to them? And yet Jesus hands his life over. And yet Jesus submits to this authority, using it against itself to rescue and redeem in this room and you, sinners, unworthy outside of Christ, of his love and his grace and his mercy, unworthy of hope. And that's exactly what Jesus would bring us. That's exactly what we have this morning in Jesus. So I want to just close you with just two thoughts. And one of them is a hard pill to swallow for some of you, okay? And the second, though, I actually hope goes to your very heart before you leave here. Please don't just shake my hand and then walk out the door and do whatever you've been doing the last two years, okay? We have to be the church. Now's the time to rise up, to rise above. It's for the sake of the gospel. No candidate is worth people going to hell. So number one, President Donald Trump is your president. Number two, he is not your king. Your king is on a throne. Your king is alive and well. And your king reigns and rules. Don't let a president push away and drive away the message of love and grace and mercy of a king. Amen.